It's a great way to get our students thinking deeply in the classroom. Today, Peter Newbury joins me to discuss peer instruction and using clickers in the higher ed classroom. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Joining me today on episode 53 of Teaching in Higher Ed is Peter Newbury from University of California, San Diego, and he works with graduate students, postdocs, and faculty, teaches them about teaching and learning in higher education, and also helps them adopt evidence-based instructional practices, like one of the ones he'll be talking with us about today, peer instruction. And before joining UC San Diego, Peter was a science education specialist, and he also, before that, taught college and university-level math and astronomy. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you, Bonnie. I'm really looking forward to this. So what doesn't show up in your bio, your official bio that we should know about you before we dive in and start talking more about clickers and peer instruction? What shows up in my bio is a long background in STEM, science, uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. I, that's what I studied when I was a student. And then that's what I taught coming out of grad school when I taught math and then taught astronomy and then physics. Here at UC San Diego for the last three years, I've had this opportunity to learn about what happens elsewhere on campus besides the science buildings. And that doesn't, I have to, I have to update my bio for that. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not just a science person anymore. Um, (laughs) Well, which I'm really happy to say. Well, I bet there would be a lot of surprises in that. I mean, you come from a field that is typically, typically difficult for some of our students to grasp. And I mean, not that any of our fields don't wind up being challenging in their own ways. What are some of the surprises you discovered from going from more of the STEM orientation to, to other aspects of higher ed? Certainly what happens in a science classroom is different than what happens in a social science classroom or a arts and humanities class. In fact, what happens in any classroom is different. What happens in physics is different than what happens in chemistry, which is different than what happens in a visual arts or a literature course too. So there's lots of things that are different, but there's a lot of underground background material that's the same. I mean, after all, it's for the most part, it's the same students. It's the same freshmen walking through the doors who have to go from their physics class over to their lit class and then over to their English class. Those are the ones we're trying to figure out what to do with. They still need to know how to learn. They still need to be metacognitive. We still need to make our classrooms active. As different as they seem in the course calendars and the course descriptions, I'm happy to say that there's quite a bit of stuff in common. Well, I would love to hear, Peter, from you. And I've got a story, too, of the first clickers that you ever used. And I know that you work for the University of California and... I used to work at UCI, the University of California, Irvine, and the first clickers that I ever used there were about the size of two HP calculators put together if they were glued together. And I remember what it was like. It was not a traditional academic class. It was a workshop for senior level leaders in the University of California. And I can remember every time that the presenters would come in 
and ask a question with one of those very, this is, I don't know when they purchased that set of clickers, but we used to trade them back and forth between the UC campuses when they would do larger events and such. I just remember what my mind would do. It would instantly engage. If And they were long days. It's hard for any of us to sit through an eight to five workshop, that kind of thing. And they really, really did tricks on my mind. And of course, those that was just my anecdotal experience. But I'd love to hear about your first experience with clickers, either as a student or as a faculty member, and then kind of what you saw them do to either your mind or your students' minds. I was fortunate to be in Vancouver at the University of British Columbia with this Carl Wyman Science Education Initiative. Just about the time people really started looking at peer instruction and looking at clickers. The the first generation that I ran across were, like you say, it looked a little bit like an HP calculator and it was infrared and you had to point this thing or the students had to point their clicker at a receiver somewhere in the front of the room. It kind of looked like you were clicking a TV remote. When someone asked a question, every student would pick up their clicker and they would point at the front and they would click and, and the infrared had some problems and Well, we know anytime there's a piece of technology in the classroom that goes wrong, it's hard to come back from those things as the instructor. So I'm happy that these days the technology is getting better and better. Here in uh, UC San Diego, we use use the iClicker system, Mm -hmm. iClicker 2, which is radio instead of infrared, so I don't need to worry about pointing at the screen, although all students still pick up their clickers and point them at the front of the room. (laughs) It's a hard habit to break. I you know, one of the, and one of the things that, that I've learned using peer instruction more is how much I've learned from my colleagues who use cards. They use colored A, B, C, D cards. You answer a question. You vote by holding up your card. And it's mm-hmm. not a piece of technology at all. It's just a piece of paper. You can achieve almost everything, maybe even more or equal, using this, this piece of paper. I certainly don't want to say that in order to use peer instruction, you need to have this electronic clicker. It, it's not about the clicker. It's about what happens around it. Yeah. The next one I jumped to was I, similar to the iClicker 2s that you're referring to, and that's through Turning Technologies, and they have audience response solutions. And I own a set of about 55 or 60 of them and have since then moved away from them, not because they're not wonderful devices, but simply because so many students today in the classroom have smartphones. Are you finding shifts in terms of your own support or, or your own teaching with the advent of so many students having smartphones in the classroom? We're certainly hearing more and more students ask if they could use their smartphone instead of and have, instead of having to buy a clicker at the bookstore. I mean, it's true. The clicker is not, well, it's not as expensive as the textbook, but still, you got to shell out 50 bucks or something to get your clicker. Where I have this phone in my pocket, why can't I just use that? On the one hand, there's often technical issues in a large classroom Mm -hmm. in that when I pose a question for my students, I need all the 300 of them to simultaneously vote. Often we don't have the infrastructure in these large classrooms that 300 people on the Wi-Fi can simultaneously connect. That's one thing we're having to battle against. I imagine, too, there would be an advantage of just the focus. You've got that clicker sitting there. That what it does is answer questions. It doesn't go on Twitter and it doesn't go on Facebook or Instagram or all of the other lovely distractions that are potential. That probably helps too with the focus, I would guess. That's true. If you have a phone in your hand, you're more easily distracted. I mean, that's you and I do this at a meeting, a staff meeting, or any meeting we go to. As soon as our attention starts to fade, what do we do? We like pull out our phone and check on something. The students are just the same as us. 
So that is one of the nice things about using a specific thing like the eye clicker is that it's there. This is the only thing it does, and, and it's less distracting. Now, you started to allude to this, whether we're using physical devices such as clickers or if we, a university might have an option of the smartphone or tablets. They're really just tools. And I'd love to shift gears now and have you tell us a little bit about the foundations of peer instruction. Yeah, sure. That's great. I'm glad you posed it that way because that's the way I'm careful to present it. And that's the way, I, in fact, I need to present it to my faculty colleagues is that Peer instruction is not a shiny thing that comes with clickers. <laughs> Cl clickers are the tool, are one tool you can do, use to sort of facilitate this. Peer instruction instead is a particular active, collaborative activity that you can run in your classroom. There's lots of things you're going to do in your class. You're going you're to lecture sometimes. You're going to show videos sometimes. You're going to have a group activity where they have to answer some questions on a worksheet. Uh, they're going to stand up and talk to each other. They're going to look at posters on the wall. There's all sorts of different possibilities. And, and using peer instruction is just another one of those tools. It, it just so happens, though, that with peer instruction, with effective peer instruction, it is, it is really versatile. You can do so many different things with peer instruction in so many different fields that you know, if you, if you only had a chance, if you only had the, the time and energy and opportunities to adopt one active learning method in your class, I, I would totally advocate that you look at peer instruction. One of the blogs I, I read as I was researching for today's interview, and I will put a link to this in the show notes, by the way, so people can access it, talks about it really does make it seem so much less intimidating than other methods of instruction just to try it out. And one of the things you talk about is that peer instruction for us can just be a two minute pause away. Can you describe that for me, that two minute pause? I could, I could just start right now and get started with peer instruction. Yeah, we, we, the instructors, we love to talk, right? We, we stand at the front of the room. We could fill hours of telling people about our content and, and that traditional lecture style you know, student, students don't learn as much from that. Students need to be actively involved, right? This is the whole basis. They, they need to be actively involved in the content. They need to be engaged. They need to be creating their own understanding based on their own misconceptions and previous knowledge and experience and skills and motivations. And in the old days when your instructor used to say, I can't learn this stuff for you, okay, maybe he was right. <laughs> That's what the students need to do. They do need to be learning the material for themselves in the classroom. And, you know, so that means we need to make time for it. We need to schedule time into the class where the students can stop and think and, and start to learn. And if you can find some way to do it collaboratively, even better. A two-minute pause is a great technique. Just stop. Stop talking for a little while and let the students stop and think. In the two-minute pause, what you can say is, take the next two minutes. Look back over your notes. If there's any questions, talk to your neighbors. See if you can figure out what question would fill in the hole. And, and then at the end of two minutes, we'll come back, and, and you can ask your questions, and then we'll keep going with the class. Awesome. And you described it as a very broad and diverse instructional technique. So it could be more broad reflection, but as you're saying, it also could be a very pinpointed, planned question 
around a topic where you know students often have trouble. The idea is that every 10 or 15 minutes or so, when students' brains are full, uh, the instructor just needs to stop talking for a while and pose a conceptually challenging multiple choice question. It, it's conceptually challenging because I, I want to make the brains hurt a little bit. If I'm not making your brain work, then I'm not like teaching hard enough. And it's, concept, and it's multiple choice. Well, that's really just the technology is that the clicker itself has some buttons on it and the colored card has A, B, C, D. But I've got friends who do this with think, pair, share. And instead of clicking, you write something down, on a, you write something down as you think. But anyway, a conceptually challenging question. All right, then each student in the class has to think about it on their own and individually commit to one of those answers. The magic of peer instruction happens in a few minutes from now when the students teach each other the content. And in order to have that conversation, every student needs something to contribute to the conversation. And so that's why the sort of first solo vote, they would call it in the peer instruction community, that time when you click on your own, that's critical. If you talk right away and then you just click what your friend clicked, you don't even have to think about it on your own. You just listen to that guy who always seems to get the answer right or something. Anyway, so that's the first step is this solo vote where you commit yourself. Then the instructor looks at the results, the iClicker technology and the other the turning point as well. You have an opportunity to look at the data and just get an idea of what's happening out there in the classroom. And so the instructor says, oh, that's really interesting. You know, I thought this, you're not agreeing with each other at all on this question. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to just turn to your neighbor. Turn to your neighbors, the two or three people around you, convince your neighbor you've got the right answer. <laughs> or if you've got the same answer, just check you've got it for the right reasons. Or whichever one of these options you picked, you know, give the evidence from the textbook for it. And, and one of the things that should happen there, or one of the things that should not happen there, is showing, certainly with iClicker, you can show a graph of the outcome of the vote. You just put this little histogram on the screen. And once students see that histogram, oh, you might be in trouble because they'll do whatever they can to convince each other that the biggest stick on the histogram is the right answer, even if it's not. So I'd say, so don't show them the histogram the first time. They don't need to see it. You know what it is. Awesome. All right. So then, so you tell your friends, convince yourselves, convince your neighbors you're right. And then the room should get really loud. This is their opportunity to practice thinking and talking like an expert. And, and you, the instructor, wander around, circulate, listen into things because you'll hear things that you never would have imagined. Well, of course not, because you're the expert. You don't think that way. Or if you did, it was 20 years ago when you thought that way. So listen in. Don't interact just yet. They'll, you'll have a chance to talk to them later. Let them talk. Listen for interesting things. Make some notes for yourself, by the way, that that group back there in the corner, they had exactly the right thing I wanted to hear, even though it's not wrong. I'm going to call them. I'm going to call on them later. Yes, that's good. Okay, so listen around. All right, when it looks like the conversation is starting to die, then you say, excellent, let's vote again. Vote again on the same question, and then they'll vote again. Certainly on one of these questions that has a right answer, you vote a second time. Awesome. And then based on the second vote, well, hopefully, hopefully they've taught each other, and, and hopefully there's a shift towards the right answer. And even if there is a good shift, you, you're not done just yet. They've had a chance to try thinking about the content and talking about it. So they've had a little bit of practice, so now you need to get this sort of class-wide discussion going. You need to draw out their thinking about all the options that you've presented, the right ones and the wrong ones. 
you can say things like, you know, everybody realized that, that A is the right answer. Good. So, so just somebody remind me why A is the right answer. That's right. Okay, good. So you get the student to give it. And then you can say, nobody ever picked B, which is good because B is the wrong answer. Someone explain to me why B is wrong. What did your group say? And again, just take the time. They've been thinking about this thing hard for the last five minutes. Milk every last bit of learning and discussion you can out of that question. So then you have a class-wide discussion, and at the end of it, the instructor will confirm what the right answer is, maybe model how an expert would solve that problem or the kind of analysis an expert would do, and then you're ready to move on with the rest of your, with the rest of your presentation. And that, that episode of peer instruction, as we'd say, it might take five minutes. It might take a little longer, depending on the kind of question you ask, but that's what we should do with peer instruction. Every 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, you insert this little six to eight minutes of student-centered, active thinking and learning. What can you tell us broadly about what you have found make good peer instruction questions and which ones are tend to, to be less ideal ones? Yeah, excellent question, Bonnie. It's, that's exactly the question that I will get from faculty and from instructors who are thinking about peer instruction. When you see peer instruction, actually, when you see clickers, people immediately say and jump to, this is a multiple choice question. And there's no way, they say, there's no way we can take something as complex and deep as my discipline and turn it into multiple choice. And therefore, I'm not going to use clickers. It, it's too superficial. All right, so that's a, that's, a common, that's a common misconception about peer instruction, is that it's just multiple choice questions that test recall. You can do that. It's true. But those are not very interesting questions. So instead... I want to I pose a question that makes the students stop and think the way an expert thinks. Now, sometimes that means I'm going to ask a question, we're going to pose a question where, there's, where I'm going to, it's going to look like multiple choice, and one of the answers is the correct answer. We see this more often in the STEM fields, you know, in certain physics problems or certain math problems. There is a right answer, by the way. The, the string will be pulled by this amount of force or the object will move to the left, or the, or the answer really is x squared. There's nothing we can do about that. And so there are questions like that. But we just got to make sure that they're not something you could just Google. Right? If I can just ask Siri to answer this question for me, uh, that's not good enough. That's not a good use of my class time. And if it's something that's going to require a 10-minute calculation before I get the answer is pi by 4, yeah, that's not such a good question either because it's hard for me to collaborate with my friends. All right, so we want to try to find questions that probe the deeper concept, probe the background concept. And in a question like that, we want to make sure that the, some of the distractors, that is the incorrect answers, every choice I put up on the board or on the slide, I want to be able to diagnose something about my students' thinking by how they answer. In other words, if they get the answer right, it, well, if there is a right answer and they pick it, I want to know they picked it for the right reason. And if they pick one of my answers that's incorrect, as much as possible, I want to be able to say, I know why you picked B. It's because of that misconception that I know about because I did the literature search or I've ran across this myself. Or if you picked C, ah, that's because you're thinking about last week, not this week. In other words, so even questions with one correct answer, you can go a lot deeper. What I've learned most from my colleagues in the arts and humanities is, is a whole different style of peer instruction question where the goal is not to test your knowledge. The goal is to make you practice sounding like a historian, for example. And, and, and the way they do it is they say, here's an interesting thing. 
there's an interesting concept, and then they pose this question, and every single one of the answers is correct. They're just slightly different interpretations, mm-hmm. or they're all correct. They're all different components of this big uh, central concept or central event. And the peer instruction question essentially is, here's five things that we were talking about that I want you to talk about. Pick one. Pick one and tell your friends about it. And by the way, do your best to support that thesis or that idea. Try to support it with the readings from the book. And so there's not a right answer. Every answer is correct. And what it does is it makes every student sound like a historian or a linguist or a psychologist or whatever the field happens to be. It makes them sound like one of those kinds of experts for a little while. That's not something you can Google because there is no right answer. Instead, it's just take this opportunity to think in more expert-like ways. I found that a really difficult transition for students to make. And as I've I actually happened upon this before knowing there was a name for doing this and also happened upon it without really realizing that our students in many cases have been really conditioned that there are right or wrong answers to things. And it can be quite uncomfortable for them to experience this for the first time. Do you have any advice for how to introduce the ideas that there may not be an absolutely right answer to every question? Peer instruction, when when it's done well, it's not easy. I go to class and this instructor makes me think, mm-hmm. like think hard. I like my other class where I could just sit there and take some notes mm-hmm. or just listen. It takes buy-in. We need the students to participate. We need to make them realize this is a valuable exercise. I mean, occasionally some participation marks or something that helps on that too. We need them to want to participate. And that means removing as many barriers as we possibly can, like making it too high stakes. If there is a correct answer and you get lots of grades for getting it right and you don't get any marks for getting it wrong, okay, that's, that's too high a barrier. People are not going to participate or they're just going to copy that like smart guy who clicked B over there or something. It, we also have to convince them that in this activity here in the class today, this is not about getting the right answer. This is about practicing how to think. And everybody can do that and everybody should do that. And, and that's what I'm interested in helping you just today is the process and, and what you're actually, whether you got the answer right or not, I don't care. We'll, we'll have a homework question later to test your content knowledge. So we need, need to convince the students that this is sort of an experimental stage, that everybody's welcome to think about something and, and maybe get it wrong, but it doesn't matter. But the important part is, you know, think about something, commit to some kind of an answer, and then practice talking to your friends about it. It's really low stakes. You just talk to the person beside you and you don't have to tell anybody else. And then you vote a couple of times, maybe with your clicker and the instructor will see how the class voted, but the instructor is not going to know how you individually voted, not right there in class. So creating that atmosphere where the students feel free to experiment with their thinking, that's really important. You linked in another one of your posts to, and you talk about a book called How People Learn, and it states, and you're quoting from it, that experts must, number one, have a deep foundation of factual knowledge, but that we don't stop there. Number two, they need to, experts need to be able to understand those facts and concepts in a conceptual framework. And then number three, be able to organize the knowledge in ways that facilitate 
retrieval and application. And since we're only auditory today on the podcast, I know this is a difficult task to ask you to do, but can you walk me through those visuals that that show the difference between what the image looks like when I only have factual knowledge and then what the image looks like when I have a conceptual framework I'm building, and then what that image looks like when I'm actually able to facilitate that retrieval and being able to apply what I've learned. Right. Hmm. <laughs> uh, I, yes, I've got Imagine the image in my head. There's some jelly I've beans. Even, I've even got it on my screen in front of me, so I know exactly what you're talking about. All right, so let me, let me give you the, the motivation for that picture in the first place. Certainly yeah. the, the the how people learn. If, if you haven't had a chance to go read how people learn, I recommend everybody go do that. It's free. Go download it, read chapter one, and, and then keep going. There's so much teaching and learning goodness wrapped up in that book that that's one recommendation. Go find that book, how people learn. I will link to it right. in the show notes. And it's cracking me up because as I was researching, I missed that big point of it being free. So that's even better. That's great. Even, even better. Exactly. All right. So here's the motivation for that, that uh, sort of that picture and, and how I see this as you say, all the content in a, in a conceptual framework. It comes from my colleagues in physics. I'm not totally responsible for this particular analogy, but everybody, every freshman physics course has these awful, terrible, like inclined plane. A cart is rolling down an inclined plane, and the angle of the plane or the angle of the, the ramp is uh, this, and the car starts here, and how far does the car go, and what's the coefficient of friction? And I mean, I, those are... Who like nobody? Okay, let's be. Nobody likes those questions. That's the worst kind of physics question. We have to answer those kinds of things. I know they're important and everything, but when people see that inclined plane with the cart, nobody smiles. Most people just cringe. Mm-hmm. All right. So here's what the student does. The student looks at that thing and says, "Okay, I did three of those in my homework last week. So let me see what I did. And we did that one in class. And now I got to know the angle, and I got to know the friction, the thing, and the momentum, and the inertia on the wheels. And what's the answer? And how do I do tangent, or do I need cosine?" And, and you're just immediately overwhelmed with a million little bits of factual knowledge, and you don't even know where to start. The expert, though, who's been doing this for a long time, looks at that thing and says, oh, it's one of those conservation of energy problems. Yeah, sure, I'll do it this way. And so the expert has the same content, but it's organized. Instead of Instead of having to flip through uh, 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 index cards in your head about inclined planes, no, this is trajectories, no, this is incline, no, this is trigonometry, no, this is calculus, this is, no, no, the expert just says, ah, conservation of energy. Maybe tomorrow we'll do a conservation of momentum problem or something. They have a whole other branch of physics. So the expert knows how to, the expert has the content organized and can quickly identify how to solve this problem and then has had so much practice that they can carry out that calculation or that analysis really quickly. So I think that's the difference between the novice and the expert. No, the novice and expert knowledge is it's not just the content. As my, my colleague Kimberly Tanner uh, up in San Francisco, she says anybody can memorize stuff. The, the knowledge itself, given enough time, anybody can memorize. The expertise comes in how the knowledge is organized, how different facts are related together, and the expertise comes in how you are able to retrieve it. So that's the kind of thing I want to help my students build. Like we say, anybody can memorize stuff. Here, go read the textbook. Read it twice, and I'll give you a multiple-choice test on it or something. Even beyond that, it isn't just looking at a 
a question that might show up on an exam that is some hypothetical, but that students who have this, and I mean, experts who have this knowledge can go around and see opportunities in such a creative way that show up in their work and in their life. One of the benefits of having this sort of rich networked conceptual framework in your head is you can make inferences. You know, the expert knows that that if this happens and that happens, then I'm going to expect this thing to happen next. And so I should go look for it. Whereas the novice doesn't have that connection. They have thing A and they have thing B. And I don't even know if they're related or not. So again, so I think the, the more expert we are, the, the, like I said, the more inference we can make, the more predictions we can make. And in many cases, the more we'll see because we kind of can anticipate what should happen next. Well, this is the point in the show in which we talk about our recommendations. And I'll just mention real quick that my recommendation is I'm a big believer in visual note taking. And during this past week, I found a great set of tools from a website called showwithmedia.com. They have an entire section of their site. Oh, and this is actually Wesley Fryer, uh, which in my memory wasn't Banks. He's more of a K through 12 expert, but I certainly find a lot of benefit from his, his resources on the web. He's got a number of sites where he gives things, but he's got a wonderful page here with everything from terrific examples of visual note-taking, and then a workflow of how if you were going to incorporate this either as a learner or as a, a facilitator of learning, and then all the tools that are out there for drawing and painting, whiteboard animation, concept mapping, a whole bunch of both for Windows or PC or web-based tools. And so it's worth the click to go check out. And the show notes, by the way, are at teaching in higher ed dot com slash 53 for this episode. So if that sounds like a good resource for you, you'll want to check that one out. And I will pass the floor back to you, Peter. What are your recommendations or recommendation for people listening today? As I spend more time teaching about teaching, the importance of not content. I mean, content is important, sure, but anybody can memorize content, right? I am learning so much more and appreciating the learning community that you need to be a part of. We need learning communities in our classrooms. Your classroom should be a learning community. It might have 20 students in it, or it might have 300 students, but they need to know that when they go there, this is an opportunity to learn together. A community of learners like that for educators is just as important. We need people like us, or, and, and people not like us, and we need access to them lots of the time. It's, it's really hard to teach and teach effectively when you're by yourself sitting in an office with nobody else interested in what you're doing, nobody to bounce ideas off of. All right, so get yourself into a learning community. Maybe there's one on your campus already. But if there's not, then here's my biggest recommendation, Bonnie, is get on Twitter. Yeah, I know Twitter's got a bad misconception, the same kind of bad misconceptions about clickers, but no. Twitter is this amazing 24-hour resource full of really smart people who can answer your questions and make you confront your misunderstandings and your misconceptions. There's, so, so when I talk to my students, if they say about Twitter, what, why should I learn Twitter? Twitter in the classroom is hard. I've, I've seen some people try to do it, and it's pretty hard to do. Twitter between the instructors. You should get on Twitter and find a community of people like you. Often it's by discipline. There's huge communities of physicists and astronomers and historians and you name it. And then 
of those people, you're going to find the ones that are also interested in teaching, for example. There's a bunch of people. There's not a ton of us who are part of a real tight peer instruction community, but we're there. So if you're on Twitter, look for hashtag peer instruction and start finding it. And so, like I said, there's these people out there. I mean, I sit in my office. I'm sitting in my office by myself right now. There's a couple of people next door, but, but I'm in constant contact with dozens of people who I can bounce ideas off of, who I can run things past. And so certainly I've learned a lot about teaching and I've learned a lot about peer instruction. But what Twitter has introduced to me, and this is the learning community part, is all of the things I didn't know about that I've had the opportunity to learn because of them. I mean, I'm a, I don't want to get too far off topic, Bonnie, but here I am. I'm a middle-aged white man in a science department originally. I thought everything was just great. And, and the people I talked to were middle-aged white males as well, because that's who was in my department with me. I didn't notice the lack of women, for example. I didn't notice that there weren't very many minority people around my departments because, well, one, there weren't, and two, I didn't even know I was supposed to ask, ask that kind of thing. So this is what I've learned so much about from this community of people on Twitter, is I'm now so much more aware of uh, diversity, of privilege, of the struggles that minorities go through to be part of higher education. And, and I wouldn't have found any of that if I just sat alone in my office or if I hung out with my old colleagues who were all sort of like me. If you want to do something to make you a better teacher, a better instructor, then get on there, get on Twitter, start looking around, and, uh, and you'll find people just like you and people that are not like you. And those are just as important. Oh, thank you so much. What a wonderful invitation. And I will be linking to your Twitter username. So if people want to connect with you, they can. And also sending up your list because you have a wonderful list you've curated of teaching and learning centers. I believe it's across the US is this what it appears to be to me, but I've been subscribing to that for some time and have found that to be a useful list to find people who are more like me that are interested in faculty development. But as you said, I have also found a lot of people on Twitter that challenge my thinking and are broadening my ability to think critically about the world in which we live. So what a wonderful invitation. Thank you so much. It's a part of my workflow. It's a part of my work day. I check my email. I check my Twitter. I learn from the web. I learned from Google Archive and, and Google Scholar. I learned from Twitter. It's just part of my everyday work now. So it's just another resource that I turn to. Well, and thank you so much for responding to my invitation to being on the show and for coming on and sharing about peer instruction. And I'll look forward to passing on any comments we get from listeners and just to continuing the dialogue from here and really appreciate your, your acceptance of the invitation. Well, thank you, Bonnie. I had a really good time. And like I say, anything that's on my blog, I'm, I'm happy to share with anybody. Follow me on Twitter. And uh, I'll walk to the links and I'm happy to answer questions that come up through you or through anybody online. Thanks once again to Peter for being the guest on episode 53 of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you'd like to comment on today's episode, you can do so at teachinginhighered.com slash 53. And as always, if you haven't yet subscribed to the weekly update, you'll receive one email a week with a combined email of all the links that Peter and I talked about, as well as a article on teaching or productivity. And would love to have you do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And any feedback you have for future guests or topics are always welcome at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.